Well, hi again, everyone. I am 1010 Win Sports Director Mark Renee. This is Play by Play with me, the play by play ordinarily provided by my guests. And, well, the me should be self explanatory at this point, so I won't even get into it. Our guest today on uh, Volume 1, Episode, I believe, 14, it's been a while since we've done one of these, is the voice of the Brooklyn Nets, longtime voice of the Nets, uh, first on radio. And now television, he does NFL, college basketball, and once upon a time, some tennis for CBS. He still does major tournaments for the Tennis Channel. He was at one time the radio voice of the New York Football Jets, a proud WFAN alum, and he may or may not be a proud alumnus of Syracuse University, too. Ian Eagle is with us. I'm excited. I hope you are, too, my friend. Uh, And the first question I have for you is, how does it feel to know that you apparently will be getting back to work fairly soon? Yeah. First of all, Mark, great to hear your voice. Great to talk to you. I know you've been a busy man, and the play-by-play guys are hoping to join in and get back to work. Yeah, it, it certainly has been encouraging. Some of the news that we've heard when the NHL comes out with a plan Uh, There was something on paper, something to look at, something for fans to get excited about. The NBA then followed suit. And again, nothing is set in stone, as we know. We have to recognize that this is very fluid. But at the very least, it gives you some optimism that there are some dates that you can circle on your calendar. And if things go the right way and they can avoid some of the hurdles that will pop up or at least deal with them and handle them, then we're going to have some games to talk about. And that would mean announcers like myself will be back to putting on the headset and preparing and hoping to provide the voice tracks for games that will count. And uh, I think that that would be something that the public would be very excited to to see at this stage. And uh, that's what we've been waiting for. We've, we've certainly from the sports viewpoint have been holding our breaths with the anticipation that maybe we can get back to the competition at some point. Now I've wanted to have you on this for a while, but uh, our schedules finally uh, connected besides the uh, extremely entertaining videos that you and uh, Noah put together earlier in this <laughs> quarantine time. I, I think I might have missed a couple over the last uh, two months or so. Um, and I do want to talk about your thoughts on him uh, being a fellow NBA broadcaster at this point. You must be an extremely proud papa. But how have you and the, the rest of the family been coping with this uh, hopefully soon over quarantine time? Yeah, so I, I would look at it in stages, Mark. The uh, initial part of this was just getting everybody together. I was on the West Coast when things really came to a head, so I ended up flying back east on a red eye just as the NBA season had been postponed. And I was supposed to do, at that point, the Atlantic 10 Championship, the NCAA Tournament, all these things that usually occupy my late March were now out of the mix and completely pushed to the side. My wife was in Australia visiting my daughter who was studying there. She was wrapping up her junior year at Syracuse University and uh, my wife had set up a trip to go see her, which was fantastic for both of them, but that got cut short. My daughter's semester got cut short as well. Eventually when Australia went into lockdown, 
Uh, we just had to make sure that, that she was okay and that she could get back, which she did. And my son was on the West Coast with the Clippers waiting for word that he could travel. And uh, at that point, we had to make the decision if he was going to stay out in L.A. by himself in isolation or come back to New Jersey and, and hang with us. We, we chose the latter. And it was fantastic that we got this unexpected family time together. Yeah. Yeah, my, my wife never thought that my son and my daughter would be in the house together for an extended period. We figured maybe a week here, a few days there, he was off on his own. That, that was the deal. The empty nester mentality had already began. So that was really the first part, getting everybody straight. Then the realization that this was going to be for a long stretch of time. And how do you stay productive? And how do you keep your brain functioning at a level that you're accustomed to? The thing about it, Mark, the last, I'd say, five summers, I've really tried to shut it down. My wife had mentioned to me, going back you know, five or six years, hey, you may, you may want to start saying no to some things and have some time to yourself. And she was right. She was prescient in saying that. So I took that whole philosophy and just shifted it up a few months. Mm -hmm. The difference, of course, being that you couldn't really go anywhere. But we've, we've really enjoyed our time together. My son is now back on the West Coast. He left last week. And, you know, I've really tried to do my best to uh, stay as engaged as I can stay, uh, but also recognizing that you have to use this time wisely. Well, a lot of us have gone back and when the archive games are being broadcast on whatever platform, be it cable TV or the internet, uh, we may find ourselves turning the sound down just to try and keep the play-by-play -play muscle fresh and doing some <laughs> mock. Have you found yourself doing that at all? Uh, no, not so much. Not so much. You know, when I walk upstairs, there's a, a circular window that, that overlooks the front of our house and the driveway and the street. And, you know, occasionally I'll see squirrels running, <laughs> gathering nuts. Maybe I do a little play-by-play -play there, but no, I, I haven't done a whole lot of the simulated play-by-play. -play. I feel like the, the 26 years of doing play-by-play -play and often doing games four, five, six days a week, yeah. uh, that, that is sufficient enough. Look, when, when it starts up again, uh, there might be a, a little bit of that period of rust, but you shift your brain and you flip a switch and you get back into the mode that, that you're accustomed to. I, I do go down rabbit holes like everybody else, and you end up watching highlight packages of players that you never would have predicted that you'd be interested in. You know, I found myself watching a seven-minute highlight video of Rosho Nesterovich. Whoa. I don't know why. I have no idea what led me wow. there. And I stuck around for the full seven minutes. I just wanted to see if there was a full seven minutes of Rosho Nesterovich highlights, and I can confirm there is. <laughs> and none of it repeated. No, no, wow. all, all different highlights. Not all NBA. There was some EuroLeague highlights in there. Oh, well. So, so it was a medley. It was a cornucopia. By the way, speaking of a cornucopia, your career has been a cornucopia, and I may have <laughs> neglected one major 
uh, aspect of your resume, and I don't want any angry tweets or emails from uh, Howie Dederoff or Larry Costigan <laughs> or Mike Eby. Uh, your stellar work on uh, Westwood One with the NFL uh, should not be overlooked, and I did not intentionally uh, overlook it. But I did want to ask you, um, because we mentioned him at the outset, uh, Noah, um, now a play-by-play announcer for the Clippers. Um, first of all, whose idea was it for you guys to team up on these videos earlier uh, in the <laughs> lockdown? Because they were hysterical. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely hysterical. I want to know who gets the credit. Uh, Mark, I do not get the credit and Noah does not get the credit for doing the video because uh, that was recommended by employers. I found that there were people that I worked for that that chimed and said, hey, I would love to see you and Noah do a video together. And at that point, when it is your employers, you uh, tend to listen. Indeed. So, yeah, a couple couple of companies that I worked for were interested in that, which was fine. And then we came up with uh, an idea. All of those were were basically one takes. It was an extension of our normal relationship, except with a, a phone camera mm-hmm. rolling on it, whether it was us shooting hoops or us just going back and forth and and chewing the fat. That's that's the give and take. And he's you know now. 23 years old, and uh, obviously our relationship goes far beyond broadcasting, but the broadcasting side has added this additional bond and, and layer and sense of relatability that uh, you, you only have when you truly can understand where the other one is coming from, and based on the fact that, that we are doing the same thing for a living. So, uh, that part has has been really unique in our relationship, and it was just great having him home uh, more than anything else. The the thing about it, Mark, and and I, I certainly don't want to say this for every family out there. I recognize that everybody's got interesting dynamics based on their household and relationships, but we all like each other. So any combination of the four of us works, and then collectively it works. So it really was a three months of, a, of joy and of respecting one another and just having fun, like sitting at the dinner table, which even when I was a full-time dad here, but working never happened. I never was at the dinner table for right. 90 consecutive nights. <laughs> it, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't feasible. So yeah. uh, we, we really did get to to do some things that, that we never got to do as a family. And it, it, it was special. I'm happy to report that it seems as if our quarantine time is somewhat slowly enough, but still it is winding down. Um, what I've asked everyone uh, who's done this uh, podcast with me, Ian, is uh, what have you missed the most about not having a regular routine? Yeah, I, I've really missed more than anything else, Mark the interaction, even as much as the action that we miss with sports, the interaction is what you get by going to a sporting event and working with a team and being collaborative in a group setting, doing television, doing radio. It's not just you. You're not a solo act. There are so many people that play a role in that. And those relationships become so important to your day-to-day life. And I've always valued them. In all the years that I've done this, when I started at FAN Radio as an intern in 1989, the, the part that, that I remember missing the most when I went back to college were the, the day-to-day 
conversations and uh, the the social settings within the work setup. And, and that's truly what I miss, you know, seeing opposing broadcasters and catching up with them and uh, the the people that, that I work with on the Yes Network side and CBS side and Westwood side and Tennis Channel side. You know, I go to Paris every year and do the French Open. And of course, being in Paris is an incredible experience. But I just like the people. <laughs> I like the people that yeah. I work with. I, I keep saying yes every year because I enjoy the experience and I enjoy the dinners and I enjoy the production meetings and all the things that come with it. So I'd say that part of it has probably been the void that I miss from a work standpoint. I've made up for it with our family, but you get used to a certain routine and regimen that you follow. And when that's not there anymore, uh, you realize that it is a big part of your life. And from a work standpoint um, with the NBA, targeting a return at the end of July in Orlando. How much do you know at this point here, still six weeks away, about what your role will be on the Nets broadcast? Are you going to be in Orlando? Are you going to be at the Yes Studios in Stamford? Are you going to be somewhere else? Do you know any of this yet? Yeah, still very much up in the air, Mark. I can tell you fairly definitively that we're not going to be in Orlando. I don't think any of the local announcers will be on location. If you are the voice of the Dallas Mavericks, then odds are you're going to call the game off of a screen in Dallas. And that's true on the television side and the radio side. Where it it might get a little more tricky is on the national side. And I do think there's still an ongoing discussion as to uh, the possibility of at least one crew from each of the major networks that cover the NBA, ESPN, ABC, and Turner Broadcasting. Possibility that one crew would be in the bubble and that the other crews would broadcast out of either Bristol or New York or on the TNT side, Atlanta. But Mark, all of this is still uh, very much a speculative situation as far as the Yes Network, based in Stamford, Connecticut. So that is certainly a possibility. You know, there's a chance that there could be a setup in the respective arenas around the country where you drive a truck up to the normal location and you set up within a room or, you know, maybe for, for some teams it would be in a courtside location, if indeed that makes the most sense, and you have your normal broadcast setup uh, so that you try to normalize this as much as possible. Uh, I think every network is going to have to figure that out. I think the NBA is obviously working very hard to determine what the video feed is going to look like, what the audio track is going to sound like. That's a big part of this, what the viewing experience is going to be. There are certain things as a viewer that you are comfortable with because this is all you know. You've been watching sports for all these years. The sound, I know, has gotten a lot of attention, and rightfully so. How a broadcast sounds, it can be jarring if it's not being 
produced in the way that people are accustomed to. So very curious to see how all of that plays out across all major sports, not just the NBA. Yeah. I, I think it'd be, you know, from a personal standpoint, from a, from a viewer standpoint, I, I think it would be great if, you know, there's no crowd. If we just had natural sound of, you know, sneakers squeaking, players interacting, coaches barking out instructions. I think that would be good because we generally don't get that. Um, of course, on the flip side of that, you have what we had uh, over the weekend with CBS and the golf is, uh, you know, one of the golfers drops an F-bomb yep. two minutes into a broadcast, <laughs> you know, and Jim Nance is there, uh, you know, apologizing for what, what everybody heard. Um, so that's something that you want to try and avoid, I suppose if possible. But, you know, worst case scenario, if you have to work from home, we've seen ESPN has pulled off the home broadcast with the Korean baseball. And it seems to have gone, you know, pretty hitchless. Yeah. I mean, I think there are challenges, of course, Mark, in, in any of these productions. You know, what CBS did this weekend, and not just because it's a network that I work for, but because I am an engaged and interested television viewer, they did seamlessly put on this golf tournament. Now, uh, the idea that, oh, we'd love to mic all the players, that that's a little bit far-fetched. There's a reason why <laughs> players do not want to be mic'd. There's a reason why the NBA and all of their mic'd up segments are heavily vetted. Uh, all of those segments are viewed before they ever make air so that a player isn't embarrassed or something isn't exposed from a strategic standpoint, or a coach uh, isn't caught saying something that the public shouldn't be privy to. So I know in, in a perfect world, oh, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear the interaction and the guys going at it and the trash talk. That's probably not realistic. Uh, the NBA is very protective of their players and their coaches and their staff members. And they're just not going to let this be Cowboys and Indians because uh, we happen to be in a pandemic. Uh, they're still going to be protective of their brand. Uh, so how that's handled, I'm not sure. You know, my initial reaction, like most people, when they heard the possibility of fake crowd noise was, no, 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 no. You can't possibly do that. That's, that's misleading the public. Our job is to report. And if you're bringing in artificial sound, then you're tinkering with the product. I've softened on that a bit because uh, the Bundesliga, which I've heard, it can be very flat and it can be very vanilla. They've piped in some crowd noise and it's changed it a bit. But again, that's what I'm telling you from a viewer standpoint. If it's too jarring for a viewer, they're going to be made to feel uncomfortable. Could they eventually uh, accept it? Yeah, but... I think in the short term, uh, you're going to see a mix of some sort where uh, you hear some form of crowd noise, whether it's from the site, uh, let's say Orlando, where they pump it in so that you're not hearing everything that's said on the floor, or it's uh, something that's provided to the network so that they can work it in and work that level, mixing it with the voice of the announcers. That, right. that remains to be seen. Makes a lot of sense. Hey, before we move on, I think I would be remiss if I don't ask you um, your thoughts on this NBA bubble, uh, on the, uh, the thoughts that were expressed by a guy that you cover uh, on a team that you cover uh, in Kyrie uh, late last week. Uh, so if you don't mind, your thoughts on the NBA bubble and, uh, and Kyrie's, uh, Kyrie's take. 
Yeah, let's take the NBA bubble first. This, this was an ambitious idea to begin with, very ambitious. The NBA recognizes that uh, they don't want to lose this season. They don't want to wrap up the season without crowning a champion. There's also a lot of money at stake, network television money that affects the owners and the players. You know, I think the perception is often, well, you know, that's the owner's problem. Well, it isn't. It's everybody's problem. Owners, players, staff members, people in marketing, PR, uh, all across the board, broadcasters, you name it. If, if the league is losing copious amounts of money, there will be a ripple effect. So I think Adam Silver is trying to limit the damage financially so that this isn't a far-reaching effect down the road. And that's why they've determined that this was the best way to approach it. Uh, get everybody in a controlled setting, play uh, a little bit of a, of a runway, a bunch of games leading into a postseason, and then go with a postseason and crown a champion. So that was the idea. Uh, it was approved by the Board of Governors. Uh, first, they took the temperature of GMs and owners. Then they brought in certain players, star players mostly, to form an opinion. And the feedback they got initially was, yeah, uh, we'd be up for that. The part that you don't bargain for, but you have to, is that it's not necessarily the opinion of everybody. Right. And we know in any walk of life, any business, there are going to be a variety of opinions and you have to listen to all of those opinions. And I think that's the stage now that the NBA is in. Kyrie Irving is not alone in his opinions. Uh, there could be 70, 80, as many as 90 players that feel this way. Kyrie was willing to take on the responsibility of actually voicing it. And while that might be a bit off-putting for some, it is the reality that not everybody is comfortable jumping into this and shutting off their life for three months. So that was just with the pandemic. Now with what's happening socially in our country with Black Lives Matter and the protests and the acknowledgement that there's so much work to do in that area, I think there are players that believe, hey, wait a second, uh, this is taking us away from what our focus should be. Whether someone agrees with that or not is up to them. But you can't tell someone not to feel that way. That is their right and certainly within their rights to express it as a player. So where I think the NBA is now is they're listening to all of these opinions. They're discussing. Uh, I don't want to say they're fighting. I don't believe that's the right word. I think there is a legitimate discussion. And they're trying to determine how many players would decide not to go and how that would affect the product. If the majority of players are willing to go, I think the NBA will continue with this plan. If they find over the next four days, five days, 10 days, that it's shifting the other way, then they're going to have to re-examine what they're doing. But the plan right now is to play. If you're asking me, will they play? My gut feeling is they will. But if you're also asking me, will there be players that decide and elect not to play? My answer to that is yes. 
I do think there will be some players that aren't comfortable for whatever reason, whether it's medical, whether it's uh, family-based, right. whether it's based on social injustices, that's up to them. But there will probably be players that choose not to participate. As an NBA broadcaster and a fan, I think maybe the fan part is more important in regard to this question. Uh, your feelings on a 22-team quote-unquote playoff? Yeah, I like the idea. I initially thought, hey, just get right into the playoff, 16 teams, and away you go. Uh, that was not the fairest way to handle it. Uh, the better way to handle it was to give the teams that were on the periphery a chance and use that as a way to also allow the players to get into a rhythm and get back to a place where they're comfortable physically and mentally. This is going to be a very large challenge. You know, you're, you're asking players that have had at that point four months off, uh, if not more, if we do the math, it, it might be closer to five months off yeah. to then just jump back in, play at the highest level, do it with no fans and do it under conditions they're not accustomed to. The stimuli that they usually have is no longer there. So the mental and physical adjustment that's being asked of these players to jump in game one and it's a playoff game and so much is on the line, that, that probably was not the, the correct way to handle it. So, you know, I think what Adam Silver did and the powers that be figured out a way to include those teams that, that still had a puncher's chance to get in. And the ones that aren't in, I think we can all agree, they were not going to be able mathematically to really make a run at this thing, given what was left in the regular season. So uh, I like the format. Uh, I think it was well thought out, and I think it's fair and it's equitable. And if indeed they can get the ball rolling and, and get this started, I, I really do believe it, it could be a lot of fun yeah. from a viewer standpoint and from a fan standpoint. It, it could be an enjoyable stretch of basketball, incredibly unique, certainly unprecedented, and uh, very much historical as well, Mark. Even without uh, Kyrie and Kevin Durant uh, in the mix, do our Brooklyn Nets have a chance to catch lightning in a bottle? and maybe come out with their first NBA title? <laughs> you know, I, I think every team should go into this thinking that they have a chance. When you take something that is so different than anything we've experienced, all of the ways that we normally analyze the game, home court advantage and scheduling, uh, all of that is thrown out the window. You have to dismiss all of that because – it's no longer in the equation. And we're asking players to do things that we've never asked them to do before. Which players react to it positively and which don't? Then, you know, let's just throw this into the, into the, the hat as well, Mark. You still have the coronavirus. So you have no idea yeah. what role that plays. If a player does test positive, it's not going to shut down this, this whole postseason set up, they would pull the player, quarantine him, and then continue to test on a massive level. But if it's a star player, if it's Giannis Adentacumpo, 
The Milwaukee Bucks have been the best team in the NBA this season. You take Giannis out of the mix, and then all of a sudden, the Bucks are no longer the favorite, and a team that you didn't expect that is matched up with the Bucks could go on a run. Uh, so it, it's impossible to even uh, use conjecture to say how all of this is going to play out. I know the Lakers, if it's just the team that we know of, although Avery Bradley and Dwight Howard have been among those that have at least initially been against the idea of going to Orlando, the Lakers are going to be formidable. The Clippers, the Milwaukee Bucks, these teams, given the circumstances, I would still say are the favorites, but uh, could there be a team that emerges just based on all of uh, the, the strange uh, circumstances surrounding it, yeah, uh, I think you could say that and and say it with with confidence that we could have a very unexpected NBA champion if we get into this Orlando bubble format and certain things occur. All right, two more thoughts on the locals uh, before we move on. Uh, number one, uh, as surprised as you might have been, I know a lot of us were that Kenny Atkinson was let go as coach of the Nets. Uh, how surprised would you be if he, come the start of next season, is the coach of the Knicks? I would not be completely shocked at that. I think Tom Thibodeau is is certainly going to be one of the main uh, candidates for the coaching job because of his track record, and there is a relationship there with with he and and Leon Rose. But I think Kenny Atkinson is going to get legitimate consideration. Uh, the job that he did with the Nets in developing talent, uh, that's where he really made his mark as an assistant coach and it carried over into the head coaching job. And uh, I think the respect level that he has uh, around the NBA, uh, the fact that he had already worked for the organization under Mike D'Antoni, so uh, there's a familiarity there. Although management has changed for the most part, there are still some connections. Kenny's a really good coach. Kenny's going to be a coach in the NBA again. There's no doubt in my mind whether right. it's going to be with the Knicks, whether it's going to be uh, – in Chicago or Philadelphia or one day Atlanta. I don't know. That part, so many things have to line up. But Kenny, Kenny will be a head man again in this league. And certainly the Nick job makes a lot of sense based on where they are in their development. Just looking at where the Nets were when they hired Kenny Atkinson and how much the likes of Karis Levert and Joe Harris and Jared Allen, and Spencer Dinwiddie, and D'Angelo Russell before getting dealt, all improved during Kenny's tenure. That's not by accident. And if the Knicks are looking for a system and looking for a coach that can take younger players and get them to play at a higher level and fulfill their potential, he certainly has already shown he's capable of that. And to that end, uh, how likely do you think it is that the guy who replaced Kenny Atkinson with the Nets, uh, Jacques Vaughn, is given the quote-unquote permanent job? Marky's going to be given a chance. Uh, there's no denying that. Uh, there is a very high respect level for him, for management, and from ownership. And... I think Jock is attacking this as if it's a tryout. It's an audition. 
And that's the way he should be looking at it. They know him. He now has the upper hand on every other candidate because if the league does resume play, he's going to get a chance to show it with this team and with players that he has already bonded with and he's already developed strong ties with. So the results will dictate a great deal of how that decision is made, but also his handling of the players and uh, his way of, of coaching is going to be part of the, the determining factor. Look, uh, let's, let's not buy, be naive here, Mark. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, they're, they're going to have a say. It's not their call. They're not the general manager. Sean Marks makes the decision with ownership. But in this day and age in the NBA, it, it behooves you to get the opinions of the players you're building around. And that's why KD and, and Kyrie will certainly be, certainly be part of this process. Uh, that, that part, nobody knows. Uh, there, there may be candidates that they're both very high on that the Nets will certainly consider. But Jacques Vaughn has been given the reins. And if it's an eight-game seeding season that he gets to, to show what he's made of and then a playoff series – and potentially another playoff series every time that he goes out there and does something positive in this job uh, that certainly gives him a greater chance of, of maybe getting the job full time. Hey, as a play-by-play announcer um, for those who are listening, who are interested in becoming play-by-play announcers, how much more fun is it to be calling games for a team that is playing meaningful games as opposed to playing out the string? Because for all the years you've been with this franchise, they have had obviously uh, very meaningful games and they have had very meaningless games. Mark, it, it does change the job, but I, I can't tell you that I've been better because the games have been more meaningful. Uh, that would be doing a disservice to the job that, that you're being asked to do. If anything, I would tell you in some of the years where the team was not very good, that on a personal level, I felt like I did some of my best work, keeping it interesting, keeping it entertaining, coming up with what I thought was fun and, and playful banter with my partner. Now, are the moments more memorable? And are the fans more into it? And are the ratings better? And is the team uh, more excited every time they go on the floor? Yes. When, when the team's playing well, all of those things fall into place. And you play that role as the messenger. People like good news more than they like bad news. They like wins more than losses. And there's just a different attitude on the bus, in the team hotel, on the flight. All of those things, there's just a more positive feeling and vibe and energy around the team. But as far as the broadcast themselves, I, I still get excited to do NBA games. And maybe that's just a little reminder that I give myself when I got the job in 1994. I was never going to take it for granted. I was never going to treat it like, ho-hum, here's another NBA game. Huh. 
every time I do a game, I think there's a chance that there's the type of highlight that I've never seen before or a play or a moment that I've never described before. And if I'm not paying attention and if I let it pass by and if I'm not on top of it, that play will live on and a call that should have been a lot better will be attached to it. So my viewpoint has always been you, you better be locked in all the time and nobody looks at context when it comes to those kinds of moments. They don't look at, oh, well, you know, he just didn't have a very good call there because the Nets won just 12 games that year. <laughs> that, that's not the way to look at it. And that's certainly not the way to approach the job. Yeah, very good point. Hey, uh, when did Ian Eagle know he wanted to be a sports broadcaster? I was about eight when I knew. I would say 1977, I, I really started to become interested in, in this part of the sports business. And I told my parents that that's what I wanted to do. And both of them, I had told them individually, both of them told me, well, that's what you'll do. I mean, it was that simple. They didn't question it. They didn't ask a bunch of questions as to why. They both were incredibly supportive. And that was very empowering. You know, I, I just walked away from those two moments. And I thought even as an eight year old, well, that's what I'll do then. So when you have that kind of, of focus from that age on, you just believe you're going to do it, even though other people outside your, your sphere tell you that maybe that's not realistic. And I certainly had people tell me that many people that just didn't have an understanding. They weren't people that were connected to the industry. And this is the seventies into the eighties. Right. And most people just would say, oh, yeah, that's cute. Okay, you know, call me back when you're a lawyer or when you're <laughs> an accountant or whatever you might be doing. But I just always thought it would happen. And it's not like I did anything about it. You know, Mark, there, there weren't the same kind of opportunities that there are today to just stick a mic into a computer and start a podcast or start a talk show or look into the camera on your laptop and use that as your home studio they just didn't exist. Basically, I was calling sports phone every 10 minutes to get scores at 976-1313 and would often just do play-by-play on my bed using baseball cards and reenacting what I thought was happening in these games uh, based on uh, what uh, Howie Rose might have been telling me or Gary Cohen or uh, Bobby G on sports phone. I would just use my imagination as much as possible. And I got to Syracuse and, and I got very serious about it. I tell Howie Carpin all the time, it's his fault that I'm even in this business because of the, that <laughs> exactly. infernal quickie quiz that I oh, the quickie so quiz. much allowance on. You know, the funny part with the quickie quiz is I would battle these two guys that were the same age as me and... I knew both of them. One I knew at that time, and I realized then that he had become friends with someone that I would get to know very well. Huh. It was Kenny Albert and Adam Holzer. Adam Holzer grew up in Brooklyn in a building where my, my father's ex-wife lived. 
And I would stay with my father's first wife for many weekends a year. It was a second home to me. Mm -hmm. So I became very friendly with Adam Holzer. Now they ended up moving to Long Island when he was probably 10 years old, nine years old. And he befriended Kenny Albert. (laughs) And I would call in for the quickie quiz. And I would often hear quickie quiz today answered by Kenny Albert and Adam Holzer. Son of a bitch. (laughs) Uh, So uh, it's funny to think back on that. But yes, the quickie quiz got me. And, uh, you know, so did the the phone bill. At some point, my father was not thrilled with with the 976 calls. A lot of dimes turned into a lot of quarters turned into a a lot of 75 cents. Oh, yeah. I remember. Hey, why Syracuse? Syracuse simply because Marv Albert went there and Bob Costas went there and Dick Stockton went there and Len Berman went there and Marty Glickman went there and Andy Musser went there and and Hank Greenwald went there. That that's really why I just thought the reputation was sterling and you know, think about who did not go there, by the way, (laughs) there's still a lot, still a lot that didn't go there, but uh, think about when I grew up, the Big East was really coming of age, and to see 30,000-plus at the Carrier Dome on CBS, Georgetown, Syracuse, and to know that the student announcers were sitting courtside doing the games on WAER radio, that that dream was real. And the, the thought that I could achieve that, that I could get there and work my way up, and that's exactly what happened. My senior year, I was sitting courtside for Syracuse Georgetown and got to call it. And I just thought to myself, this is everything that, that I had envisioned it to be. So those were very powerful images as a kid. And then yeah. when it was backed up by the cradle of announcers that they produced time and time again. I just thought this makes too much sense. Now did eight year old Ian want to be any of those guys or was there somebody else? No, it was Marv more than anything else. I I would say Bob Murphy was the only other one at the time because I grew up a Mets fan and you know, that, was such a big part of my youth radio, although the Mets were terrible. Right. When you're walking into school with a Lee Mazzilli lunchbox <laughs> and the other kids have Reggie Jackson and Thurman Munson uh, on theirs, you know, you realize that uh, this, this was a more difficult road to choose, but Bob Murphy and Lindsay Nelson and Ralph Kiner had a big impact on me and, you know, later on, Steve Zabriskie uh, and Tim McCarver, they, you know, they were the voice track of, of my youth. And for summers, uh, that, that dominated. I, I was watching every game and I was listening to every game in some form and ending here and ending there. It was a big part of my life. So Marv Albert was certainly the, the broadcaster that I aspired to be, his versatility, uh, the fact that he was capable of using humor and uh, he could he could work his his partner in in not only an analytical way but in a comedic way 
I took note of that. He was doing the six o'clock, 11 o'clock news. He was doing the Rangers. He was doing the Knicks on weekends. He'd pop up doing boxing NFL. I just thought to myself, what a life that must be. Uh, so that was, that was the main broadcaster that resonated as I continued through the years Bob Costas certainly had had a a large effect on my ideal and my approach Al Michaels Vern Lundquist uh, those announcers during different parts of my life I think uh, played a role in in how I was going to craft my style and and develop my whole approach to the job. It's funny when I hear you uh, interacting with your analysts and especially for Tello because you and Marv shared him <laughs> yeah. over the years and, and it just, it, 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 it strikes me and I'm sure other people that you are following very closely in Marv's footsteps with the way you bring in and interact with your analysts. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. And, and I think that may be what has set you apart from uh, most of the other play-by-play -play people of our generation. So kudos to you. Well, that means a lot, Mark. Thank you. I think that requires a great deal of trust between you and your analyst. And it also requires effort off the air. You know, the idea that, yeah, we'll, we'll just do this when, when we go on the air. Uh, there has to be a continuation of that. There has to be a, a friendship that develops. There has to be a, a real sense of teamwork that evolves over time. Uh, I like to think that I'll take analysts places that they're willing to go because they know that I'm going to be there with them, that I'm not going to take them out there and then retreat Right. We're going to go out there together. We're going to have fun together. We're not going to make fun of athletes or fans or people, but we can make fun of situations or make light of them and bring some levity in. And I do think that ultimately that's what people want. People want to be informed, but they also want to be entertained and they want to feel like they're in on it. If it's an inside joke, that only goes so far. They want to feel like they're part of it. And the only way to truly do that is to have that kind of interaction with, with the person that you're sharing the, the broadcast with. And that includes sideline reporters too. They all have to be a part of it. And if they're not, if it's not inclusive, then people can sniff that out. They could also sniff out if the play-by-play -play announcer is doing their broadcast alone, basically, and the analyst is doing a separate broadcast. If right. it's not shared commentary and if it's not actual discussion, then I think eventually viewers and listeners figure that out. And that, that's not good for anybody. And has basketball always been your favorite to call? I, I don't know if it's my favorite. It, it's the first one where I got a real chance to do it. So maybe because of that, I'm, I'm a bit more associated with it. But obviously, I've been involved in the NFL for a long time. I actually started working NFL broadcast before I started working NBA broadcast. I got the Jets pre and post game position for FAN in 1993. And then I ended up getting the, the Nets play by play job in 1994. That was a big deal when, when that job was offered to me at, at FAN that gave me something that I could really build around and, and it gave me something that, that was my own. Uh, 
and going out, covering the Jets, uh, working those pre and post games, taking phone calls. Uh, that was really important after games to, to get the temperature of the fan and right. to handle that in the way that I did and to navigate through it. Uh, so that, that gave me a lot of confidence moving forward that I could step over into a different role, the play-by-play role, and have a really good understanding of storylines and background information and weaving in those storylines. So I just took that mentality and applied it to the play-by-play. But no, I, I really do enjoy both a lot. And if anything, tennis on a personal level, I, I played tennis as a kid. I was a good player. I played in high school, played in tournaments as a kid. So that's the sport that probably had the most of my own personality in it when I call because I actually have some, you know, legitimate insight, not at a professional level, but insight as a player that I just wouldn't have from basketball, football, and and some of the other sports. I was going to ask you uh, for what you believe to be your career turning point, but you may have just mentioned it, uh, that Jets pre and post, was that it? Yeah, Mark, I, I think, as you know, you get some opportunities along the way, and they're not always the way that, that you thought they would be, uh, the way that they came about. Sometimes it's, it's very matter-of-fact, and it's not this huge buildup. You know, my, my real chance at FAN was uh, completely out of left field. I was producing from 7 to midnight, which required me to go in at 4 p.m. in the afternoon to do my shift. And on a random Friday in September, I went in to produce uh, what was probably Mets Extra with Howie Rose. And Stan Martin, who was the sports director at the time, was in the newsroom on the telephone. And Stan was a wonderful man. He passed away a, a number of years ago. He had a, an acting background, so he always was a little bit dramatic in how he would articulate. And he was on the phone in the newsroom. We had a, a bullpen set up. Uh, not the most luxurious of setups, mind you. I, I this don't was wanna... in Astoria at the, uh, yeah. the sub-basement, if I remember so, correctly. Yeah, sub-basement. Right. Uh, there, there were urine stains on the ceiling of this sub-basement, like literally from bathroom pipes it, it it was it was our dump is the way I was just gonna it. say it was just like Shay which we called our dump yeah, yeah. our dump mm-hmm. yeah, yeah at some point you just accept it and you're like no nah, no nah, you know this is our dump we're good with it so Stan was on the phone and I could only hear one half of the conversation this was September of 1991 and all you hear is what no really no you've got to be <laughs> kidding me no and everyone's turning in the news are like, what's going on? But I can't even say that it was that out of the ordinary because that was often the case right. with Stan. So he hangs up the phone. He turns to me um, adjacent to him in a different cubby. And he says, you want to be on the air, don't you? I said, well, yeah. Everybody kind of knew I wanted to be on the air, but it wasn't something that I would, would actually broadcast every day. I was told when I took the producer job, hey, if you want to be on the air, keep it to yourself. Okay. So he says, go make a tape right now. Do give me a two minute sports cast, make a tape and one take, give it to me. And I said, 
well, why? He says, don't ask me, man. Just do it. <laughs> so I go to the back. I grab two carts for sound. I come back. I do it in one take. I hand him the tape. He goes to a back office, and he's gone for about 15 minutes. And he comes back, and he said, you're on the schedule Sunday. So an, an update anchor had pneumonia. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, I always thought it was Andy Poland, but Andy Poland told me it was not him because he had a Cal Ripken streak where he never missed work. So I think, <laughs> I believe it was Pat Harris ah. that uh, fell ill. Uh-oh. So I got the shift. Sunday, it was seven to midnight update shift on an NFL Sunday. Maybe it was six to midnight now that I think about it. And I did the shift. I did well. I was asked to do the shift again and then again and again and again. And that was the transition to being an update anchor, eventually hosted a Super Bowl pregame show with Steve Levy leading up to the Buffalo Bills and the Washington Redskins. So that was in early 1992. And then Jody McDonald left to go to Philadelphia full time. I was given the weekend overnight hosting duties from midnight to 6 a.m. And you know, my life really changed. My career changed entirely. So there were a bunch of breaks in there. Uh, the net story, we can talk about that another time, but that was a long convoluted story that somehow worked in my favor that I got the job. And that led to eventually getting the TV job. And that led to getting the Jets play-by-play -play job because I had built enough credibility. And I got the CBS NCAA tournament in 1998 because all of their announcers during the regular season for one weekend, they were all in Japan to call the Olympics and right. they just needed announcers in America in the 48 contiguous States. So <laughs> me, Joel Myers and Jim Durham called play by play for the three games they had that weekend. And I was asked to, to then work the tournament. So, so many things that could have gone one way, went a certain way and, you're catching breaks. It's a big part of any job, but certainly in the broadcast business, you've got to take advantage of those breaks when, when they're offered to you. Indeed. And I want to mention uh, Pat Harris uh, because he has been a longtime uh, colleague and friend, and he has launched more careers than any of us can count, most of them intentionally. Uh, and even if you uh, Wally pipped him, um, <laughs> Unintentionally. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, um, he, he's a terrific guy, and uh, I want to make sure he gets his just due because uh, his name has come up a couple of times. In fact, when I had Dave Sims on yep. a few weeks back, uh, Pat had produced uh, Dave Sims' uh, sports night show on WNBC yeah. back in the day. And, and, and Patty, uh, you know, has, has, as I said, he's had, he's had, I think, a far bigger impact on folks' careers than maybe even he realizes. So yeah, Mark, thank you, Patrick. Yeah, very, very classy thing to say. And, and I should mention, Pat continued at FAN. He still had a role. He was still doing updates. Right. Uh, and Pat was, was a just terrific guy to deal with, a pro's pro. You know, that's what you look for. And it's funny, during that time period, from May of 1990, when I got hired as a producer, to September of 1991, when I got my first chance as an update anchor, the guys that I, I really looked up to because the next step for me was to hope that I could get a chance to, to be an update anchor 
the guys I looked up to were Stan Martin, John Clossy, John Minko, Andy Poland, and Pat Harris. They were doing the job that I wanted to do. So trust me, I was like a sponge, even though I wasn't someone that asked them 50 questions, but I paid attention. I could tell what their routine was. I certainly grew an appreciation for how they went about their business, how they got ready for each update, and how they performed. That's the other part. You know, Mark, you know this because you have to perform a lot in the job that you currently have. It's not just, oh, yeah, you know, I'll just put together an update, do it, and then <laughs> right. go about my day. No, 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 no. You're doing many, many updates around the clock and sometimes for a variety of radio stations where what they're looking for is not exactly the same as what the other radio station is looking for. Oh, so very true. my mentality at that point was through osmosis, you've got to learn this job. And all of those names that I mentioned played such a key role in learning, not just learning the job, but learning how to do the job the right way. Yeah. One last Pat mention uh, before we move on. Um, the studio that I worked at for 22 years in Rutherford, uh, long after Pat and Diane had moved to Dollywood um, after leaving Rutherford, uh, Pat's uh, name tag, name plate was still on the door to the studio. Hmm. Nice. <laughs> in homage and because I, I think he deserved it, and uh, so we still to this day refer to it as the uh, Pat Harris uh, Sportscasting uh, yeah, Studio. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, Ian, you've had so many um, memorable calls over the 26 years with the Nets and all these other um, places that you broadcast for. If we were to put together an Ian Eagle highlight reel, uh, what do you think would be the first call on that reel? Oh, boy. First call on that reel. You know, calls that, that usually grab people's attentions are buzzer beaters, things of that nature. There have been a bunch for the Nets. I've had a few in college basketball as well. You know, I, I've been really lucky in that I've called really big events, but not necessarily for the main channel. You know, I've called NBA finals for the world feed and NCAA championships for the world feed and some of the best ever, including Duke and Butler. And now that we've seen the, the last dance, I was on the call for the world feed for Michael Jordan shot over Brian Russell and that Bulls jazz series for number six. So I think back to those moments and although they were not, the calls that you go to because they were not the main outlets. For me, they were special because I was put in that position with a headset on and had to do the job and do the job well, just based on my own standard. Uh, they're not easily available. Uh, I would not be able to find that game or that call anywhere. You can search and search and search, but I've not been able to find it. That whole sequence was ridiculous with Jordan taking the ball away from Carl Malone and then coming down the floor and, and hitting what turned out to be the, the series clinching shot. So, you know, I'd have to really sit back and, and try to uh, compartmentalize 
all of these calls between the NCAA tournament and tennis. And, you know, I've done six masters, even though I had never attended a golf event in my life, literally had huh. never been to a golf event. And the first golf event that I attended, I called for Amen Corner Live and the Masters. Same for track and field. Had never been to a track and field event. And I ended up calling eight straight NCAA outdoor track and field championships before they lost the rights. CBS lost the rights to ESPN. And the, the same holds true for boxing. Had never been to a boxing event. And I called four fights for CBS in 2000. So I just pride myself on, on being open and immersing myself in whatever the assignment is. I think that's the lesson that I would try to, to leave with any young broadcaster. Don't say no because it may make you feel uncomfortable that you don't know that sport. Say yes and then take on the challenge of learning the sport and doing everything in your power to become as close as you can to being an expert and do the job and chalk it up to another experience. To me, I feel confident in all of these roles that I've been put in because I've been very open to the idea that I will do them and then I will succeed in them. I go in with the positive attitude of, yeah, I can do that. If I watch enough tape and I throw myself into the preparation and the nomenclature and the tone and the approach that I can do the job. And that's, that's how I've, I've tried to attack all of these assignments through the years. I will echo that and tell you that uh, that's how I started doing uh, NCAA lacrosse my senior year at Hofstra. <laughs> Nobody would do it. I said, I'll take it. Yep. Had never seen a lacrosse match in my life. And uh, even earlier this year, uh, when I did uh, men's volleyball for St. Francis, Brooklyn, they were launching a program and wanted a play-by-play announcer. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And I have not played volleyball since high school. Um, but I was lucky enough to have uh, uh, taught at St. John's a varsity volleyball player. And a good friend of mine is an assistant coach at NYU. So I was able to get all the, the terminology down in two weeks. Um, and then, you know, even that as prepared as you think you are, you know, first match comes and something happens that you've never even heard of and you're hitting Twitter and messaging people <laughs> with, with, uh, with texts, what's going on here? What am I missing? And even they don't know. <laughs> yep. So occasionally it's going to happen. And you know what? I think the fact that I was honest with the audience, however vast it may have been, I said, listen, this is my first match. I've never seen this before. Can't find it in the rule book anywhere. Never planned for it. So I'm just going to watch with the rest of you and we'll figure out what's happening. Yeah. And you were willing to go to that place. And sometimes it is uncomfortable because it's not coursing through your veins. It's not something that you are completely committed to 365 days a year. But you took the assignment, you did it with a professional approach. And now you know if you get called upon to do it again, that you'll be even more comfortable than you were the last time. Yeah, and so on and so on and so on. Nobody comes out of the womb ready to do this. It, it requires <laughs> maybe Kenny. And then he maybe says he Kenny. Yeah, maybe Kenny. He said he didn't. But. It it requires a lot of effort and commitment and drive and determination and passion. 
And you've got to wear that on your sleeve as well. So you've got to be open and honest with your audience. That's okay. Uh, I, I think, you know, the BS meter is very high for most people that listen and watch sporting events. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're trying to pull one over on your audience in this day and age, it's not going to work. Right. Very difficult. Uh, and, and for my, you know, from my perspective, meaningless, because if you don't know, you don't know. And it's, there's nothing wrong with saying you don't know. That's my take. Um, hey, uh, before we wrap up, what's happening with your uh, summer sports casting camp this year? If you can't do an in-person um, presentation, will there be a virtual Iron Eagle camp this summer? Yeah, Mark, I, I ended up doing the camp for 15 years with Bruce Beck. And I would say this is the fourth summer where I stepped away and have not hosted it. Bruce ended up bringing his to Westchester, and I've appeared at his camp each year, so I'm still a part of it. And then uh, Chris Carino and Tim Capstraw, the Nets radio announce crew, the outstanding crew that they are, they are among the best out there. They took over the, the camp here in New Jersey. Chris actually stepped away from it this year, so Dave Popkin, who is a terrific broadcaster in his own right with Seton Hall and with various college basketball, college football, baseball games. He is now combining forces with Tim Castro. So there are two separate camps being done. And I believe both are being done virtually. So if there are kids out there and parents that are looking for something for their kids to do for a week, I think they're doing it two different weeks in the month of July. So this, this might be a perfect opportunity to uh, get your kids uh, involved in something. And if it's something that they're passionate about, it might really uncork that uh, part of their personality because that's, that's what we saw through the camp for 15 years. Kids that really had a, an interest in this and then took it to the next level in college and professionally. Now we have a number of, of broadcasters now out there in the workforce that were part of the camp at one point of their young life. Some that kept coming back year after year after year. You know, we would have an advanced camp. Mike Quick from MSG would, would work on that, and he did such a splendid job of, of going past the rudimentary side and really getting into the weeds so the opportunities are there, and uh, you can look them up online. They're available. It, it really was a, a special, special week for me every year. And, you know, I just got to a point for, for 15 years where I thought, okay, this is a good round number, and, and I'll be comfortable just as a guest speaker from here on out. Yeah, my bad for uh, not realizing you had stepped away from it. So long ago, I was just so used to you being a, a part of this, uh, the summer camp scene. And of course, uh, the late, great Ed Ingalls launched the one at Hofstra that he continues did. to go strong. And I know they've had a lot of people who've come out and gone on to professional careers. So uh, you didn't mention anybody by name. Um, I won't mention anybody by name, but there have been uh, a, a good number of folks who are working in the real world. Uh, in the world of sports who have come out of these camps. It's, yeah. It really is remarkable. And, and Mark, one thing to add too, because uh, you mentioned Ed Ingalls, and I know how close uh, you were with Ed through the years. 
when I started on the Jets side of things, Ed, who had done that job in some capacity in a prior iteration at WCBS, could not have been more welcoming, uh, could not have been more magnanimous, could not have been more generous. Uh, he always walked into the press room with the kind of attitude that we should all aspire to. He brought positivity. Uh, he was just one of those people. And for a young broadcaster at the time to see that uh, someone who had accomplished a great deal in their career, but treated everybody the right way, it, it left a mark for me. It, it, it struck a nerve in that this is the right way to do things. And Ed, I know, took great pride in the program at Hofstra and how many young people that he helped. So what Bruce and I did with the camp, uh, it, was, it was really special for the two of us, the relationship that we developed, and we became very close based on it but also special because there were so many kids and parents that truly appreciated it through the years. A lot of the credit does have to go to Ed who, uh, who did the same thing out on Long Island and uh, did it with the same touch required to, to handle young people and to try to inspire people and keep their dreams alive. So I'm so glad you brought up his name and, yeah. and he certainly deserves a mention anytime we get on this subject yeah, matter. Absolutely. And I'm embarrassed to admit, and I do it all the time, I did not realize that he had called the Super Bowl on the radio for CBS um, until I started teaching sports broadcasting, a course that he used to teach uh, also at St. John's. Yep. Yeah. Incredible. All right. We do call this play-by-play -play with me, um, and there is a, a dual purpose, Mr. Eagle. Um, do you have, or did you have, either uh, a favorite board game whoa favorite board that may game. have helped you kill some time over this quarantine oh no no we we have not so no board any games. we have played no board games okay. as a child you know shoots and ladders was, was well, that was a one. long time ago that's a long time ago <laughs> obviously monopoly i went through the monopoly when trivial pursuit was big okay we, uh, we did that. There was a game, I, I don't know if you would call it a board game, but I do remember playing this. I think it involved a board, but there were other pieces. It was called Kerplunk. Yes. It was, that was a big, big go-to on weekends in Brooklyn for me when I, when I would uh, spend time with, with my father's ex-wife. Yeah, I, I did not have a normal upbringing, Mark, so let me just make that <laughs> Not many point. of us did who go Very into clear. broadcasting. Yeah, I, did, I definitely did not. Uh, we could do a podcast, and I probably would have to have a, a psychotherapy session as well. <laughs> but my, my upbringing was very different and unique, but uh, one very vivid memory was playing the game Kerplunk. Interesting. We've had, it, it, it's funny, I've asked this question now to, 13 other people, and uh, we have had a, a variety of answers, and I think that's the first time we've heard Kerplunk, so thank you for bringing some. Uh, look it up. See, see if someone can maybe uh, get you a, a Kerplunk game on eBay. I'd love to I think to, it was I'd love Burkhard to take who you came on. up with one that I'd never even heard of, that, that most of the planet had probably never heard of. I think, it was, I think it was Burkhardt who came up with one that was completely off the charts. I'll have to go back and listen to the uh, previous installments. 
Hey, listen, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a blast and I appreciate all your time and I'm, and I'm glad you and the family are doing well and I'm, I'm glad for you that you'll be getting back to work hopefully soon. Mark, a pleasure. Uh, always great talking to you and look, it's another part of the gig that we discussed. I got to know you just based on going to sporting events and those are the relationships you really treasure. Uh, these are professional relationships, yes, but uh, there's that that very fine line because they turn into friendships. And I appreciate your friendship, appreciate your kind words, and and thanks for having me on the podcast. And I hope I get to see you at the very worst uh, in late August at the Open. I hope so. Fingers me are too. crossed. I'm Mark Renee. That's Ian Eagle. And hey, Ian, thank you so much for stopping to play-by-play -play with me. You got it, Mark. My pleasure.